Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week is a legend among legends. If you look up Las Vegas Bookmaker in a Dictionary and you could see just one name, this is the guy. Please welcome Jimmy Vaccaro. Jimmy, how are you? I am feeling fine, young man. Thank you for the big build-up. You know, <laughs> we can never live those type of build-ups. But you know what, my friend? As you would know as well as any, although I probably got thirty good years on you yet, being seventy-five in this coming October, it's just uh, something that uh, you know people like us, and I'll throw you in that barrel also, who enjoy being around things that move quickly and move fast with with, pin- with opinions that are involved here. So I've been very fortunate, you know, growing up around this stuff and obviously coming out here. So I I can honestly say uh, uh naturally my workload is about one third that it was what it used to be but i still enjoy being around and here working for a great guy like michael gone and naturally chris is the uh, sports book director who i also have known for 52 years so uh a long history i enjoy it uh, i still get juiced up for it and then we'll see where it goes from here beautiful great stuff let's start from the beginning jimmy how was life growing up it seems a lot of you guys came out of that pittsburgh area yeah. Well, like everything on the East Coast, although you don't like to take all the credit for it, but, uh, you know, way back when, and the way I quantify it, uh, my good friend, is simply, uh, you know, growing up in a small town 22 miles east of Pittsburgh, and like way back 30s, 40s, and 50s, the, the steel mills were obviously going crazy. The factories are going crazy. So there was something in every little town that had something going for it. So as long as there was something there where people could make money and have a little bit of fun with it, uh, you grew up around it. Uh, like ours was the Westinghouse, ours was the airbreaker, ours was a railroad coming through here. So a town with even around, at the time, maybe 3,500 people, you had your one little bookie, you had your one little guy who took the numbers and turned them in, and you had, you had a couple of pool rooms. And uh, uh, the one that I always mention is Louis Pool Room. It's not a made-up name. you know. It's Louis Pool Room where I used to play the what we used to call them spot sheets. Now they're called Parlay cards, uh, spot sheets were simply because of the, uh, uh, you know, the spot on the game. But uh, naturally, we we took none the best of it, being 12, 13, and 14. When you look at a game that was picked, but on the on Louis spot sheet, it was minus three on both sides and ties loose. So we didn't <laughs> take the best of it. But betting 50 to 75 cents, I made it all worthwhile. I enjoyed it. I I understood it. Not that I beat it. Believe me, I understood it. And then I would. Uh, I would just hang, uh, be around people who were supposedly were like the next step up, uh, uh, bookmakers who were taking 300 a game at that time. To me, it sounded like 30 million a game. And I, I just, like I said, and I have an older brother, six years older than me, and he's had a pretty charmed life too. He started the first high school American basketball game in Pittsburgh called the Round Ball Classic. So my brother's son, he's six years older than me. So in those days also, you know, you could drive around to, two or three uh, little towns uh, uh, within a 20 to 25 minute drive and they had their own little pool room. They had their own little place where you could make these bets. Uh, and simply, uh, I, at the time, maybe I was 13 or 14 and Sonny was 20, so I got to see the outside world also, what it's like on other little cities. And it just grew up around it and I truly, truly, you know, would never trade one day of uh, all the, uh, as I said, you know, uh, people like us, like we went to Harvard by simply meaning being on the street. And so I enjoyed it. And uh, one little one little thing there concerning, you know, what I did at times when I, I guess I would say I took some chances. I wasn't 18 years old yet, but I always had this feel and understanding that I wanted to see what Las Vegas was like. 
So here it is. We're going to this little town. And I, I told three of my posse uh, in January of that year, I was my first year at Youngstown State University. I said, we got to go see Las Vegas. And they said, oh, you're crazy, but maybe we'll go see the the uh, Pacific Ocean. So uh, that uh, late May or early June, I took my three buddies, put them in my 1956 Chevy, and, you know, three on the column, and then we drove to Las Vegas. How I got here, I only remember I said I knew if I go on the Pennsylvania Turnpike to the Ohio Turnpike to the uh, Illinois Turnpike and then look for Route 66 and follow it the whole way, and I did. Ended up in uh, the Pacific Coast, uh, but on the way back, naturally, for a four-day stint, we came to Las Vegas, and at that time, there was no kids whatsoever in any casino. And uh, I enjoyed the three or four days we had here. I kept going back in, and they kept throwing me out because I looked like I was 12. And then I come back home, and then uh, when I got older, I started to take trips out here. But, uh, well, well, can you believe this? This is going on year number 46 now. I said, you know, what's the sense of staying back home? And my blessed mother, God bless her, she made me drive her to a little uh, town called McKeesport where she had a little savings account that my dad didn't know about and she took $150 out of it for me to give me my plane ticket so I landed uh, I know the exact date it was January 4th 1975 and uh, I played a little lucky I got a job I wanted to be on the inside out I played lucky and uh, here we are kid 46 years later absolutely incredible wow unbelievable Jimmy you have so the, the street education um, is just second to none and you brought that with you to be able to start your career out west. So when you move out to Vegas, did you have mm-hmm. the uh, bl- you know your mother's blessing, or was there any opposition, yeah. or, or she was okay with you going out west? Yeah, you know what? Uh, coming from a family, uh, two very very hardworking people, as I'm sure you can take attend to back there. You know, and uh, first of all, times were different, uh, attitudes were different, families were obviously a little tighter than they are now, and two wonderful parents who obviously we loved until, until they left us. And uh, uh, my mother worked in Pittsburgh. My dad worked in the Duquesne Steel Mill for 44 years. And you ready for this? He missed three days of work. Oh, my God. Uh, we got kids here. Yeah, they, they missed three days a week. <laughs> so it, there was never, ever. I mean, it was just simply uh, that's the way it was. And and uh, I just uh, I came back, and, uh, and six six weeks later, I – you know, my brother took me down to the uh, Pittsburgh airport at a, a Fal- Fort Falcon at the time. I'll never forget it. So he drove me there. It was cold and it was snowing. And he then naturally said, you know, when you when you get to Las Vegas tomorrow, give me a call. Make sure you got there. Everything was okay. So I called him the following day and said, everything is fine. He said, where's my car? He said, it's at the airport. It didn't start. So when I left there, I left somebody at 19, I think, uh, another Ford Falcon uh, that was ready to fall apart. So I got here. Uh, what had re- what had happened also going way back? Uh, I knew knew Jack Franzi. Jack Franzi grew up uh, only about ten miles from where we were. And that's Chris's uncle, and uh, uh, I told him you know, in November that like, I was thinking of coming back, and that was the last I saw of him for a while. And then I got a phone call. I was going to leave a little bit later. He said, you got a place to stay. And I said, I said, no, my, my friends from Youngstown said I could stay with them for a while. He said, well, listen, he just got into his second marriage. And uh, he says, I'm going on my honeymoon. Uh, we're going to be gone three or four weeks. I said, he said, if you want to stay here at my house, you can watch the two the two kids. He actually had three, but the two two young girls were here. So I went down and I stayed at his uh 
stayed at his house, took the kids to school every day and make sure they got fed and whatever. I think they were 10 and 12 at the time. Uh, but I, I, I did not stop one inch of like moving on to, to, I wanted to get inside the casino. I said, the first move for me is just like, let me see from the inside out. I, I have a good feel from the outside in, but I wanted to see exactly what made these players work. And remember, uh, there really weren't any sports books in the hotels then. They were all the independents, you know, uh, uh, Harry Gordon's Churchill Downs, Sammy Cohen's, the Rose Bowl, places like that, Bill Dark. Uh, so those were the only places, but they had no casino there. So my thing was, well, how do I get in here? So I knew a little bit about of the name Michael Gone. His father was a legacy also, you know, Jackie Gone, who was obviously, you know, one of the greatest bookmakers uh, you know, in the 20th century out here, Bob Martin and Toledo Blackie and the E. Walker. And I was fortunate, at least I, I knew those people. Not that it went any further than that, but uh, I said, you know, what's the easiest way for me to get started? Well, they said uh, a couple of my friends who were break-in dealers at the time said, well, you go to a dealer school. He said, if you know anything, you see, you probably get a job within three weeks to a month. So uh, I knew of Michael Gone only because of his father. And I knew Michael had a small casino at that time called the Royal Link Casino, which had been blown up a few years ago. So I said, you know, what the hell can he say to me? He can just throw me out. So I just, I actually went to the Royal Inn and I went to his secretary, Nan Coffin. And I said, uh, Mr. Gone, please. And she said, who are you, young man? I, I said, oh, my name is Jimmy Vicaro. I don't think Mr. Gone knows me. But Michael Gone, the same attitude way back when, the same attitude now. For some reason, he let me come in the office. And there he was behind his desk. And I introduced myself and whatever. And uh, I said, uh, I'd like to get started. I, I, I want to go to dealer school. He said, and he was so congenial. It was incredible. He, at that time, he owned a dealer school also. He you know, taught uh, the 21 and taught the craps. Uh, so I said, yes, I, I heard it. Uh, you know, I, I should come to see you. You could tell me where your dealer school was. He said, yeah. I said, I said how much is it? He said, $250. I said, uh, can I pay you later? He started laughing. <laughs> I didn't have 250. He picked up the phone. I kid you not. This, well, the, the biggest turning point in my life, uh, second second biggest, uh, was he called down to the dealer school and uh, Steve Morell was running the school at the time. And I, Michael, I seen him talking. He says, uh, "I got a guy here, Jimmy. Uh, what's your last name again, kid? Uh, Jimmy Vaccaro. He said uh, he wants to come down. He wants uh, to be taught 21, but he doesn't have any money. He said he'll pay you, you know, in payments when he gets it." That's what he did. Well, the next day I showed up at the dealer school downtown. I worked my ass off. Uh, I went two or three times a day uh, to simply to keep, 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 and keep. I mean, keep and keep dealing. I wanted to get good, so it took me a lot of keeps. So I finally got an audition about, uh, oh, maybe a little under three weeks, and uh, Frank Toady hired me, and I was a 21 dealer. Then the biggest break came uh, ever. It was simply about, about a year and a half. Uh, Michael, at the time, you were just talking about the Barbary Coast. And so I was, to some degree, uh, going to be groomed to, like, just, you know, be on the floor. I still wanted to be on the inside. But every day I went to Churchill Down and uh, all the other places where the bookmakers hang out. And if I lived to be a million, here was the, um, the famous thing. He said, uh, do you know how to run a sports book? And I said, no. And he said, good, neither do I. And uh, he <laughs> made me sports book manager at the Royal. We had three windows and... Uh, and no, no wall boards, no nothing. We had to, we had to build it as we were going along. And then, uh, that was a great, great learning curve for me. Then Michael opened the Barbary Coast in 1979. I think it was February 1st, 2nd, or 3rd, somewhere around there. 
And then uh, uh, we did a pretty good job at the uh, bar because every, within two years, everybody around it, Caesars, the Dunes, Flamingo, uh, MGM, they opened sports books also. The next big break came was Kirk Kirkcorian hired me. And then the next big break was Steve Wynn hired me. Then um, here it is. I'm back here 46 years later. So it's been a great ride, kid. Believe me. Michael gave him a biggest break in life. I'm sure, you know, the gone family with everybody that they knew and what they did, uh, he could have picked one of a million people. But uh, to this day, he laughs because it's like, uh, I don't know, I, I, he just took a took a liking to me. And uh, that was it. Although, you know, once I got in, in the door, you know, I, I did everything that I could to make it getting better and better and it was it was like it was like going to a college at that particular point and it's been good ever since man well, there's so much there to take in jimmy that's just unbelievable <laughs> how, how how nice michael was to you didn't even yep. really know you yep. and and he gave you a break right. and let you let you learn how to deal for you know for nothing um go to the right. school for nothing and when you even answered, do you know how to run a sports book? And you said no. He said good. Neither do I. You know what I mean? Like I was. I, maybe he was looking for a no because you guys can learn together. Uh-huh. He, he he's he yeah. he doesn't mind um um if somebody doesn't know you know how to do something because if he believes in you, then um then he believes yeah. that you'll figure it out and, and, and mm-hmm. know and know and figure out your way. Which is which says a yeah. lot to, to to how Michael Gorn looks at the person, not just the, the resume. Just unbelievable. Well, you know, he simply said, you know, one of his things that one of the things that stuck with me uh, for the past forty five years is, is simply that I re- I remember it. And here I was, I didn't know how to run a sports book. I knew what it was about, you know, I knew all that stuff. But like now you're in charge. You have to get a crew. You have to do this. You have to you have to go in front of gaming. You have to get your you have to get your work card. You have to be scrutinized. Uh, you have to do all these things, and it's a, it's a very you know it's a could be a pain in the butt because you have to do so many things even to get accepted in the because out uh, here they call it you know the, the uh, working in the casino is a privilege meaning at any time you know gaming can control come in and pull your work hard and kick your ass out on the street so it's a lot more to it than that and then obviously just understanding who is who i knew who the wise guys were i knew all of that type of stuff and and you know what uh, they, they were relatively nice to me uh because of the people they knew the gone and jackie gone whatever uh Lefty Rosenthal. Lefty Rosenthal was right up the street to start us, and Bob Martin was downtown at the Union Plaza. Now, basically, in Southern Nevada, those were the two people who opened up sports books in the hotel environment. So, what I would do every morning was very simple. On my way, on my way to the uh, uh, to the uh, uh, excuse me, the uh, Royal Inn way back when, I'd stop at Harry Gordon's Churchill down right down their openers. Then I'd run. I'd, you know, drive down to the Stardust and write down their openers, and I drove to right down the street to the Royal Inn. Not that those people needed my help, but like I could still see, I, could, I started to get a feel for it real quick and understanding what they would open at, what it'd be. Then I looked at night, you know, where the games ended, you know, what was going on there. Then I had my own little rest period when I went to the Royal Inn, and maybe a cup of coffee in the coffee shop, then came out and opened up. Yeah, you were able to look at other guys' lines, guys that are so well-respected like Bob Martin, mm-hmm. and to be able to guide you on, right. on, on how to deal, which is mm-hmm. great. That's that's what a, you know, for you to even think of that and pick that up. Um, I know it sounds yep. so trivial, something like that today, but back then, did everybody do something like that? Were, were, other, were other people going to places like Bob Martin and, and seeing how, how, um, how, what their lines were? Or how, how, did, how was the, the well, atmosphere? 
Nashville, I grew up in a very close friend. I was Scotty Shetler. Uh, Scotty for years ran the Stardust, and Scotty's a Pennsylvania kid too, so I, I got to know Scotty pretty good. And, and then he ended up just working at the Stardust, so I would I would you know talk a little bit about it and and ask him, especially uh, you know I knew what a halftime bet was, and I but I knew when they when halftimes became pretty prevalent. Uh, I would put up my own halftime. I didn't want to see anybody else because, first of all, there wasn't that much time. Uh, but but I would do it because I knew this was another learning curve that I got to do on my own. Now, I could run up the street, which occasionally I did on big events, and then run back and open and open up that number. But it, it'd be it'd be amazed at how many people, were, you know, because I I even at the beginning, and I was a likable guy, and I never tried to do anything silly. I never tried to do anything that was out of character. I never tried to do anything. So even consider what you want to call the smarts or the wise guys, whatever. Uh, they didn't try to run over me. If they bet something and I was a little bit out of whack or a lot out of whack, they would say, Jimmy, you know, you know do this instead of this. And uh, it, it all, I retained everything. And then fortunate, uh, you know, Jack Francie was, was close with, uh, with Bob Martin. So, uh, wow, quickly. Uh, I was not like the inner circle, you know, don't get me wrong that I was a big wise guy in the first year or two, but then there was a time when uh, I was invited to lunches with, with, with Blackie and, and Joe Schneider and, and Bob Martin. And it was just, it was, it was a great, great feeling. And one of the other things, the underlying things, uh, Bob liked me too. He took a liking to me. So, you know, once every, you know, three to five weeks when they had a lunch, I wasn't there every week. They always had their uh, weekly lunch. And, but when I would go, he would always tell me something that I utilized or remember I did or whatever. And it was just like, again, it was just like going to a smartest teacher in the world. And he was always, always cordial. He was always nice. And I, I listened. And I've always said this too from, I still listen today when people talk or I may not use it, but I listen to everything and everybody. Uh, Lefty Rosenthal, and obviously from, from the movie or whatever. Now he had two lieutenants used to run around for him, uh, Joey Boston and Marty Kane. And they used to come down to the Royal and bet uh, but then one day they told me that the lefty wants to have lunch with you. I said, holy smokes, you know, what did I do wrong? <laughs> so we, went over, we went over to the Riviera, and uh, you know, lefty had that very, very slow talking, low voice. It was hard to hear him. Yeah, like, like the lean, you know, not that he was endorsing me. I had lunch two times with probably the first year, and then naturally after he got into trouble, whatever, I'd never seen him again. But like I said, I, and part of the respect that I received was simply because I worked for Michael Gaughan, and Michael Gaughan's father was a, obviously a, a big-time operator, too. Remember when, when Bob opened uh, the sportsbook at the Union Plaza, you know, Jackie Gaughan had half, he bought half the plaza. So, you know, not that Jackie was there, with, didn't know what was going on. He just, uh, that, that's who he was, and he loved the sports, and, and so does his son Michael. But uh, that that's a lot of... A lot of just being around it. Like I said, uh, Michael Gaughan uh, was, told me way at the beginning. He said, kid, you can make a mistake once. <laughs> so <laughs> I learned real quick. So that was it. Wow. So cool. Oh, man, Jimmy, this is, like, just so great, you know, hearing these stories and seeing how you learned and everything and how, you know, just, it's just I don't know, that's fascinating. Um, well, kid, anybody that says they know it all coming in, well, they're just a liar. I'm, I, I hate to use the word liar, but that, no, we we all got our ass kicked a few times. You had to get your ass kicked because if you didn't, that would mean that would always mean that like you always had all the answers. Well, that's that's just not right. It it doesn't happen that way. It's not going to happen. Uh, and uh, so uh, when I get that, I listen to their stories with uh, you know about eighty percent that couldn't have happened the way that they did because I was here. I saw what was going on. 
So you, you mentioned that you had such a good relationship with the wise guys. They would tell you if there was something mm-hmm. off. They would be nice, you know. You know, mm-hmm. were there other bookmakers that the wise guys didn't really care for as much as like they, they did for you, mm-hmm. or they weren't reciprocating, or you know, how did you develop such a good relationship, and how did others fall short? I, you know, what my friend, it's a hard one to answer because I it never really thought about that too much. Uh, I think the fairness of it was simply always. It was always up front with uh, with them, and uh, yeah, going back to anybody, um, we we know who we're talking about. We we talk about the biggest and the best. We we all know the names. I don't need to repeat them, but with those people and everybody else, when they came in and they had a, a market to do something every day, all I said was like simply, "This is the limit. You, you give me this limit. Don't ask for more." I said, "Whatever you want to do." I said, "But you know, don't." And don't throw me any snowballs, which uh, which simply meant don't you know lay four for five hundred dollars on the Monday when you put up the games, and then uh, come Friday when the game is seven and a half, they take the seven and a half for you know ten times more than you let them on for. So it, I never, ever, ever, ever told anybody that like you got to you, you know you can't do it because simply you know you're just I wouldn't use the word cheating, Mason, but you know these these are the rules that we had, and this is the rules that I've had. And I will listen to your side of the story. Uh, I've been over uh, many more times in the favor of the player, uh, only because it's like it's a two-way street. You know, I'll give you one mistake too. But, but from that particular point, uh, I've never had a problem. So as far as anybody else, you know, I guess you'd have to ask him, my friend, because I never, uh, I never was threatened. I was never screamed at. I was never told that like you're a young punk, you don't know what you're doing. Uh, I've never, I don't think I've ever heard a harsh word between me and a customer in all these years because first of all my temperament which I got from my father my temperament was simply you know I don't get too excited one way or the other I've always told people this and I don't know whether it's a tribute or it's just my nature uh, if, if we're sitting here we're watching a Monday night game and, um, and you wouldn't know who I needed because <laughs> it's the way I've always been uh, and I, I go way back first of all like I said my temperament has been the same my entire life but as a youngster, I'm going maybe not from my, my 20s, uh, early 20s when I made some what I would consider hellacious scores back then, and also knew three weeks later I was dead ass busted. Uh, I never let it, uh, you know, I didn't like it, but it, it didn't bother me. My, I had no value of money until I didn't have any. Then I went on and tried to do whatever it took to get there. So I've never raised my voice watching a game. Like I said, the kids don't know. For years, I don't know who I know who I, you know, I'm rooting for, but like I, it doesn't come out. I've never punched the television. I've never slammed my fist on the desk because my my answer has always been now my hand hurts. What's the sense of doing my, hitting my hand because it's not going to change anything? And as we're talking right now, you know, it's just uh, it's just my nature. You know what? It's uh, it's done very well for me. I I've seen. Uh, I hate to say this, and I'm not going to ever mention any names, but like a lot of the people who started when I did back in the 70s so most of them are gone i think bobby davis who works for uh, uh william hill now uh i think bobby and me were the only two people who worked in the sports book in the 70s i surely could be wrong i mean it's southern nevada but the, there ain't too many of them and uh you know bobby's been around for, for a thousand years and uh, too many of uh, their brains got scrambled when they were running these joints because they thought you know they would would get beat and didn't like it, and then they did something else and didn't like that, and, and they just get all muddled. Uh, me, uh, like I said, kid, you know, uh, the, the worst, the worst day ever for me. I uh, lost a million five hundred thousand. This was at, uh, was at the Mirage. Uh, 
And the best day that I ever had booking in Nevada, uh, it, was, it was all Mirage at the time, was uh, $2.6 million in one day. So uh, the numbers didn't hurt me. Uh, I always treated it the same thing. And I've always said as a, from this side of the counter uh, simply that uh, my job is naturally, you know, forget all this, they tell you, like, you know, you're going to balance out every game. Well, that doesn't happen. You know, just you put yourself in the best position and you got the 11 to 10 going for it. You should be all right there you know, when, you check, you know, when you check the numbers at the end of the year. Fascinating stuff, Jimmy. Fascinating stuff. So, um, I, I, you mentioned also Michael Gorn. Is there a difference? Because Michael Gorn, you know, I, I met him uh, you know, just one time. Seemed like such a sharp guy. And, and you know, how does Michael Gorn today uh, compare to Michael Gorn of when you first met him? Is, is he any differences? Is he still as sharp as a tack? Well. Things are a little different in his life. Remember, uh, his first casino was the Royal Inn Casino. He didn't uh, he didn't have the casino. Uh, excuse me, didn't have the hotel. He just had the casino. And then uh, so he started out with the sports worker. And like I said, being around this stuff his entire life with his father. But you just you got to give the guy credit. Uh, you know, he was the, the big force behind the Barbie Coast, which is an absolute skyrocket in its day. Then remember, then Michael uh, built the Gold Coast, and then he built uh, the Orleans, and then he built the Sun Coast. He had at uh, one time he, he had, I think I believe five casinos. Not a hundred percent. I get mixed up anymore. So many freaking joints to the own. Now I'm at the South Point. Now remember, at the South Point now, that uh, that was a. Uh, uh, a breaking thing between uh, Michael Gaughan and the Boyd Group, where they, in a sense, uh, merged all all their casinos together. So uh, it was the Boyd Group and Michael. I think it, counting all the Boyd Groups, they must have owned nine or ten casinos. But then after a few years, uh, Michael just would rather be on his own. So the deal was made, where uh, Michael got the South Point, which is where I'm at right now, and then uh, he relinquished all his holdings from the Boyd Group. So what he's done, he went from a little casino to owning five or six of them, then being part of nine or ten of them, and then uh, you know, back here now, and he just thought that that himself. So when he got here, I, hell, I think it's almost probably ten years now, and uh, the joint that he's created. Uh, this isn't coming from me. This is coming from people who uh, who've been around a thousand years. Uh, Michael Gaughan has to be considered one of the best operators ever to own a casino that includes the sports book also. Uh, you understand what the sports book means to the place. Naturally, we all understand it's the lowest hold percentage. Uh, it's not a slot machine, so you have to be very careful in the way that you run your business. And then, uh, you know, it's, it's the same old thing that we've been saying for a thousand years. Uh, the sports book guy, naturally, you want to uh, take care of the people who frequent your, your casino and your sports book. Uh, you want to attract new customers in the way that you do things. Then you want to make a little bit of money. You're not going to make money like the slots or anything else because it's just not enough hold percentage in there. And then the business side of it is, uh, I tell people stories like this and they just shake their head. Uh, it, it is a business. It must be, uh, judge as a business. Chris has to go all these uh, marketing meetings and everything else and then staff and whatever here, what can we do here, how can we lower this here. Uh, I tell the story, I think it's 90 or 91 is when the NFL finally came to town with their bullying tactics, which they still do, and they said all of a sudden, you know, we're going to uh, we're going to charge you, you know, from watching our NFL games. Because remember, way back in the mid-80s and the early 90s, we just simply, everybody would have a few dishes in your back back lawn and the, uh, and then just pick up the games on the dish and then and show them at the, and show them in your sports book well the nfl didn't like that one bit so all of a sudden they came to town 
And I remember we had a big meeting, all the operators from Southern Nevada and the NFL hierarchies who came here and said, this is the deal. And so one of our guys uh, runs another casino, one of our guys. He said, I'm not going to pay him. I said, oh, that'll be fine it's because nobody will be in your, in your sports book on Saturday, on Sunday morning. And so we had to okay that. Now, listen to this. This is the bottom line. I'm a, this is the Mirage. This is the first year that the NFL charged in order for us to, you know, show your games on our screens in our sports book. This is the Mirage. Mirage and Caesars at the time were the two bigger places. And they had square footage. Whatever your square footage it panned out, that's what you were going to pay for the year. $25,000 is what we paid for at the Mirage and your 91. Wow, it sounds like a staggering figure. I'm at the South Point right now. And South Point is a relatively, you know, good-sized race and sports book. Now, it's $140,000 a year that we pay to broadcast the NFL games. And now let's say you're the Mirage uh, outfit and you got how many, nine or ten, whatever, how many casinos you got. Well, the NFL charges each individual casino. In other words, if you're just the MGM, you just can't pay one time. You got to pay nine times. Wow. So that is like really changed everything. So everything from, from that perspective, it's a business must be treated like a business because, you know, do you give away drink tickets? How much you're giving away? Uh, Michael gone. And I, I say it proudly because I was, you know, with, with, uh, with Brent Musburger and I've uh, known Brent for all these years, maybe we'll get to him later, but my, Michael built this studio. It's, it's an absolute skyrocket. People love it. And, and the kids that do all the shows are really good. I've never heard one negative complaint. So when it came about, uh, you know, naturally Michael gone signs all the checks, when he agreed to it, which didn't take him that long. He thought it was a good idea also. Uh, he spent $900,000 on the uh, studio that I'm about 20 yards away from right now. Uh, we have the, the studio, and everybody can see in. And basement level, there's a big office down there that decent, you know, does all their work from. Uh, but it's an absolute monster. People talk about it quite a bit. People come to town. Uh, we put them on, take them off, whatever. You've seen it because you've seen it when you were here. Uh, you know, things like that that you must keep creating. It's a new world, and you must obviously the competition is sky high. There's a sports book on every every ten feet now. But you know you have to, and Chris has to watch the dollars and cents too because that's part of it. Uh, see, I locked out. I don't have do all that stuff anymore although i didn't do much of it then but that's where we're at you must keep up with the people next door uh you have to be liberal with, with certain things and uh, and you go from there but it's not what it was when i was a kid when everybody used to come into royal inn have a cigar they spit on the floor and threw the cigarettes on the floor that those days are over and then the women got involved and everything else got involved and the public got involved so you as an operator had to evolve also if you didn't you ain't in, you ain't working no more one of these joints. I can tell you that, kid, because it's a different ball game. Very well said. Very well said, Jimmy. So, um, let's talk about Steve Wynn. How was it like working uh, for Steve um, at, at the Mirage? Oh. You know, how was Steve as a boss, and what kind of uh, reins did he give you? Play. You know, I played lucky, and here's what I mean by playing lucky. Every time that I got a job, starting after the first job with the Royal Inn and and then the Barbie Coast is like, uh, obviously, uh, you know, uh, it was it was well known that when Michael has an operation that uh, he knows what the hell he's doing. And especially when you introduce the race and sports, we're going to speak to the, to the people also. So uh, I was hired by Krikorian. 
to help open up his first race in sportsbook at the original MGM. Uh, I was there about, oh, it was about two and a half years. I, I knew Kirk a little bit. He was a heck of a guy. There's there nothing. The, the few times that we talked, this thing was, Jimmy, don't ever sweat the money. And he had a cigarette in his hand. And I had one little uh, uh, called Capazzoli's. It used to be a restaurant down on Maryland Parkway right here in Las Vegas. And uh, me and my friends, uh, we would go there quite a bit. And, uh, you know, Kirk had a, uh, had a house right up on the golf course, right up the street there. And he used to bring his sister Rose in there to eat quite a bit also. So I would see him in there probably, you know, a couple of times every month. So, uh, not that he hung around the sports book, uh, but, uh, you know, his, his guys did. And, uh, you know, when I say did, they come and, you know, they were learning too, because it was something new for them. And then, uh, I was actually laying down one night in the back watching the games and, uh, my secretary, if you ask what I wanted to call her, um, came in and said, Steve wins on the phone. I said, I'm with you crazy. And she, I said, you got to be mistaken. She came back about another 90 seconds. She said, Jimmy, it's Steve Wynn. Well, I knew Steve. I played cards against him a couple of times in like some of the tournaments. He used to go for fun. And I, I used to play it a little bit, you know, going back 30, 35 years. I don't play anymore. Uh, and he, it was Steve. And, uh, he said, Jimmy, he says, uh, can you come on down tomorrow? I want to talk to you about and what had ha- what he was leading up to. Uh, just a few days before that, Steve had the big coming out party. He had renderings of the of the Mirage because that's when he just started to first build it, and it was a big news and all over. And I said, "Yeah, I saw your thing in the paper." So I went to meet him the following day and uh, down at the Golden Nugget, and he had this big you know mock thing of what the Mirage was going to look like or whatever, and. He loved to talk about anything with designing or whatever. That was his strength. I mean, he knew everything about that type of stuff. So uh, then we talked. He said, Jimmy, he says, I want to be the best race in sports book. Uh, uh, here's what I want to do. Now, I remember at the time, he didn't have, a, he didn't have a, uh, a sports book at the Golden Nugget, but he wanted to open up one because it was going to be 18 months before the Mirage was going to get opened anyway. So I fortunately got that job, and he simply, you know, just let me, uh, open up a sports book down at, at the Golden Nugget, and then actually uh, we hooked them both together when the Mirage came to be. Let me tell you a quick thing about the Mirage. It's, to me, is astounding. Uh, opening day, you know, the d- department heads were standing outside and uh, of the, where the valet is at the at the Mirage, and Steve is at the podium, and Governor Bob Miller and his wife and everybody was there, and um, he was making a speech, and it was an incredible speech, and this. I think it was a, a Rolls Royce pulled up and Siegfried and Roy got out and they had one of their beautiful lions and tigers over there were the white the white tigers. And they put they propped him up on his paw and he hit the registration thing and Steve said, This is the first guest at the Mirage. It was a, one of those white tigers. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. They open the doors and everybody comes rushing in. Within two hours, as I was walking around, you couldn't move in the joint. At the front door, both both entrances, there was police there, uh, security, put it that way, security was there. There were so many people inside the casino, you just couldn't come in the casino. The only what they were doing was, like, if five people left the casino, they let five people in. This went on for 10 hours. Wow. I'd never seen anything like that in my entire life. And then uh, uh, the next day, it was, it was just, it was like that. So now we're open about a week, and it's still the, the big buzz. And Steve uh, shows up in the sports book. He's with some of his friends, and he's pointing things out and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, and I was standing there, and he looked at me, and I went over, you know. He, I went over, and he said, Jimmy, he says, I don't want anybody, I don't want anybody going anywhere else if they're looking to make a bet. 
That's all he ever told me. And he never, ever, ever questioned anything that I did. Uh, I remember Bobby Baldwin was his uh, uh, president, Bobby naturally the great card player. So the money didn't bother Bobby, too. He knew there were going to be swings in the sports book. So it was very, very easy working for the whole outfit. And naturally, them, we got uh, uh, we, we built a, the place up pretty good and did a lot of other things, uh, you know, with the sports book being the front runner there. So, uh, but there's never been an uh, never been an owner that's like questioned the way that I do things. And I actually went to the Atlantis for about seven or eight months. And and uh, what what's his name? The guy that owned the place from Australia, like uh, wherever they were. Anyway, he didn't say anything either. He just let me run the place. So and. and it's been a good run, kid. That's all I can tell you. And I've been very, very fortunate. Now, let's call some of it, you know, since at that time, a lot of the operators didn't know anything about racing sportsbook. So they actually gave me a lot of room to tell them about things and how it was going to be good or bad for a while, but it all always turned out good. So I was lucky to be in that group when everybody was learning about racing sportsbook in the hotel environment. Incredible, absolutely incredible. That's great, Jimmy. So, so you, 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 Mirage, you went to you said Atlantis and the Bahamas. How about um? Yeah, so, 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 um, let's talk about. So, I know you were at Lucky's for a little bit, um, down mm-hmm. at the Plaza. Right. How how did that? When when did that happen? And how was that in your career? Well, uh, I was back here. I came back from the Atlantis, and I was just going to be a consultant. They were going to pay, which they did. They paid me for a year. Just uh, I don't, I don't want to spend the whole year down there because after football season uh, at the Atlantis, it obviously didn't, you know, dried up pretty good. It wasn't, it wasn't anything else. The people from Florida came over just for the football mainly. So they gave me a contract. I was a consultant, so I went, came back here. And uh, Joe Asher and uh, Leah made it. They were from the Wall Street people. They're, you know. They were all Wall Street, and they wanted to get involved in uh, the sportsbook industry out here in Las Vegas also. So uh, uh, they came, and, and uh, Leah Matus was the boss, and Joe Asher was his lieutenant. And then uh, Matus, for uh, whatever, you know, you can read your own stories on this knucklehead, but uh, what can I tell you? But anyway, Joe Asher wanted to open up his – his. Uh, he was going to try it on his own also, knowing the people that he did back east, and he knew he could raise some money and stuff like that. And uh, – so uh, I, I guess I was the first person he called. Now, it was the same thing. I was going to work 10 to 12 hours a day. I was done with all of that even way back then. Uh, and uh, he said, okay, you know, just help me get started. And so we had – it was called Lucky. There was a little joint uh, down near the airport. And then uh, then he got a bigger office about a year and a half later. And then uh, he, uh, he simply, uh, you know, he got money and he opened up. And then about two years after that was the uh, – uh, with the William Hill people coming over. William Hill people I give a lot of credit to. And here's what I give credit to. Uh, they came to America. They knew that they were going to take a shot. So that's why that they, uh, that, that they, you know, came with the William Hill. They bought out, uh, Vic Salerno's outfit, uh, the, uh, the Calneva in, uh, in, uh, in Reno. And then, and actually the other place down, Vic Salerno down here. So, uh, William Hill had great foresight. You know, they opened up, they were there five or six years without anything else except the William Hill stuff, although they, you know, they, they went big in the state. They got a million joints here in the state. But their main interest was to be here and thinking that within five years that America would okay sports gambling, and they were right on. So they were the first European country to come here, and now they have joints all over the world there. But they had more sports books uh, deposit places and books here in Nevada than anybody else. So uh, I give them credit for that. So that's what they did. So, like I said, and then uh, uh, when I when I did that, and then uh, Vic 
Salerno called me, so I worked for Vic for a little bit. I was just bouncing around. I was having a good time. Everything was good. And then I got the call from Michael Gone. And, uh, well, I can't believe it's been uh, seven years since I've been back here with Michael. So, like I said, kids, it's a merry-go-round, but uh, it's, uh, it's still going around and around. We haven't stopped the carousel yet. <laughs> That's great, Jimmy. So, um... Okay, so I, I kind of want to go over some like names, like some some legendary names in the business. If you could just like you know give a few sentences about how you feel about that, or how they influenced you, or any interaction with them. So just, let me just spew spew off a few names here. Let's start off with Chuck right. Sharp. Well, Chuck, uh, without a doubt, the uh, the greatest NBA sides more total than uh, than anybody I've ever seen. Uh, I've I've known Chuck, and I would consider us dear friends. Uh, same thing with Chuck. Uh, I I would want him to bet the first in the morning with the NBA. So we made a little, uh, like a not a deal, but like, okay, Chuck, this is what I would like you to do. Uh, if you can bet me first, and I can see the marketplace for all the NBA and the NBA totals. Jimmy, no problem. He did that for uh, for years and never, ever, ever wavered. And on my side of my word being, I'll never throw you out or do this because you're winning or whatever. So, uh, uh, Chuck and then his, uh, his running mate, uh, uh Jimmy McHugh, uh, he's come and he's been at the counter also at the Mirage. So, um, I haven't seen Chuck in about a year. You know, he lives in Thailand. We still got a house here and a gentleman and actually the first one to understand. He was the first one that told me, I'll never forget this. He's the first one that told me, he said, Jimmy, watch for the uh, uh, fourth game in five nights. I said, what are you talking about? He said, watch for a team if they can play the four games in the five nights. Well, obviously, uh, the fifth day, they were all tired out. And, uh, and he said, it's, it's an unbelievable. He said, but that's just for you. I'll never forget that. He told me that. And uh, we, we, would have, we would have dinner. Uh, we would have dinner maybe once a month. And, uh, you know, but that's. A, a great human being, you know. He was a great. He went to um, the Olympic trials, I think, in 1960. You know, didn't make the trials for the Olympics, but uh, Chuck uh, was uh, was pretty good. And Jimmy McHugh is his partner. Was a, you know, they used to hustle a lot of money. They're both from New York. They used to make a lot of money betting on uh, bowling because Jimmy was really good from what I understood. I've never seen him, but I, you know, I never seen him bowl. But I would take Chuck's word for it. And Chuck was Chuck was all around. He knew a lot about a lot of different things when it came came to gambling. Believe me. Uh, and then he made some investments here, and they all worked out well. So I, I tip my hat to Chuck, and uh, you know, not that we see each other much anymore, but uh, uh, a true gentleman. And um, lucky, I am lucky to call Chuck my friend. Great, Jimmy. You mentioned it. I think it's fascinating, you know, on on how you and Chuck had this deal where he would hit you first and you never kicked him out. Mm-hmm. How does that change? You know, given the you know the era where nobody really got kicked out, everybody was given a fair shake back then. Um, compare that to today, where places like William Hill, despite how you know they they have expanded well, all throughout the country and everything, were, but they're notorious for kicking people out. What, what, well, I'm not gonna get I'm not gonna get to that only because, and I said this since since wherever uh, I have everybody runs their book that the way that they want it run. I, I can't say anything negative about anything or anybody. Cause I, I truly never worried about anybody. I just, my thing was like, you know, what am I doing for these people here? And that was it. So I, I, I really, and I, I truthfully, I've never, doesn't bother me. Nothing bothers me. Just, you know, I work for Chris is my boss and um, his boss is Michael gone and we get along fine. And that's as far as I want to talk about that, my friend. Fair enough. No problem. Uh, let's talk about okay. Stu Unger and um, 
And he's, oh, and he, wow. Well, did you? I, I tweeted out about a week ago because somebody asked me uh, this. Uh, when I do the Twitter, I call it it's the Twitter Twitter. I don't know how the kids always have to set it up for me because I ain't got a clue. None of this computer stuff. But I've been typing things for about the past past two years, and uh, uh, we got pretty decent following. We have a lot of fun. But I got a, I guess, been about a week, and the guy, uh, he said, Jimmy, he says, how about a quick Stu Unger story? And I said, well, I, and I'm th- I'm sitting. I said, geez, there's 500 of them I could go with. This is the one I sent out on the, on the computer thing. Uh, so remember the great fight, uh, when was it, 91, 92, whenever it was, when um, uh, Julio Cesar Chavez was fighting Meldrick Taylor at the Hilton. And the infamous uh, Richard Steele stops the fight with, with two seconds to go. Well, Stewie loved the bet, and he would play as high as you would lo- would let him play. So the fight was at the Hilton at the time. I still call it the Hilton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the West Gate, the Hilton. Mm-hmm. So we were all the Mirage people who we got tickets for to go to see the fight. I got on the bus, too, and, and I went over with them, and Stewie was in the bus and like a lot of other, other high rollers. We get to the Hilton. And the fight starts. And if anybody had ever seen the fight, well, Meldrick Taylor probably won 10, uh, would have been 10 out of the 12 rounds. And then uh, what had happened with uh, basically two seconds ago is Richard Steele jumped in and uh, he called the fight because uh, uh, Chavez had him. It was hitting him pretty good in the corner. But uh, believe me, he could have waited another two seconds uh, and the fight would have been over. But he stops the fight, which means Chavez is the winner. So everything switched around from winner to loser to loser winner real quick because that's the way it was. So after the fight, we're ready to go back to the Mirage, and I turned around, and uh, we had our own little section where the Mirage people were sitting, and, and Stewie, which is about – Stewie's about, probably shorter than me, so he's probably about five foot four. He weighed 12 pounds. <laughs> anyway, he they stopped the fight. Now, I know for a thousand percent because I was with him at the Mirage about an hour before we left to go to the fight. He bet $50,000 on Meldrick Taylor, and he bet $50,000 on the fight would go the distance. Well, naturally, with two seconds to go, he was a stone-cold winner with Meldrick Taylor in the over because Taylor had had easy win nine rounds out of it. So he was standing on a, on a chair, and he had his hands in his pocket. It was like one of those moments. He said, you wish someone could have taken a picture of this. This little guy just lost $100,000. We get back on the bus, and the next morning, it was like nothing ever happened. He just like right back into, let's start running again. He, you know, he was that type of kid. But he had 50000 on Meldrick Taylor and 50000 on Go the Distance. And one more quick one, uh, he loved to bet. And actually, if it was a weekend, most of the time he was playing poker from Friday to Sunday. So it was a NFL Sunday night. I knew for a fact because when I walked by the poker room, I could see they had obviously this huge game back there uh, with, uh, with Doyle and Chip and all those other guys. And uh, he would run over to the sports book and he came over to the sports book. He was trying to make a bet. All of a sudden, he was like halfway kneeling down. Well, he, he couldn't catch his breath. We called security. Security came. They. We, we had a little buggy type of thing. We took him back to my office, which you know, which is in the sports book there. We put Stewie on the couch. We like they're like, and they're ready to call, you know, whatever they're they're going to see if I can take him to the hospital or not. They put one of those little, you know, those masks on you so they get like a breathing apparatus because mm-hmm. uh, he was having a shortness of breath. Once again, my friend, you know, when I tell these stories, people say, "Oh, Jimmy, it couldn't have happened that way." Well, here's this little guy. 
He grabs the mask. He turns. He pulls away. to Jimmy, I want thirty thousand on the Giants. <laughs> he put the he put the mask back on or whatever it was, and then so the, that was Stewie. I, I am kidding you not. He pulls that thing. He said, Jimmy, 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 I want thirty thousand on the Giants. Uh, I, oh boy, that's Stewball. Unbelievable. He, uh, he, he left us much too soon. Obviously, a lot of it is his own fault, but I. I tell you one thing, I have never seen anybody with, with as much nerve as this little youngster. Unbelievable. No fear whatsoever. None. Zero. Incredible. So you mentioned Chip Reese, Doyle Brunson. How did that poker crew? Uh-huh. Uh, how was how did you interact with those guys? Uh didn't uh, didn't didn't really get close to Doyle. Not that there was like any bad blood, but like he was, you know, it just it really wasn't circumstance. Now Chip, I was just a nice just I Whatever you hear about him, he he was just a gentleman. Obviously, a great gambler. Obviously, uh, all-time poker player. Uh, he liked he liked to play a little bit in the sports book. He, he'd come over, and uh, w- there was a connection. There was a uh, he you know he dated the girl uh, for quite a while who was friends friends with me from way back in the Youngstown days, you know, way back east. So we got to know each other, you know, relatively well. Matter of fact, one one year, Chip uh, had a small piece of. Uh, of our fantasy football team that we had. So it was just a tremendous, tremendous player. Once again, way too early. And uh, the last time I saw people that I haven't seen in years, although, heck, geez, what Chip's got to be gone, what, 12, 15 years now? But I remember going at the, at the, at the wake and, uh, wow, every big shot in the world who in the gambling industry was there paying respects and well, we should be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, how yeah. about how about big betters, Jimmy? Like you know, I, I know there's a lot of big betters when you were at the Mirage. Or, uh, I remember uh, mm-hmm. you tell you know, when we were sitting down once. You told me Carl Icahn. Uh, yeah. How? Uh, he, was, he, he was different. He red body. Yeah, I mean, you know. No, no. Go ahead, Alan. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, Icahn was what we would call a an event better. Uh, he would show up, uh, you know, maybe three or four times a year. To bet a lot of money on a certain thing, usually uh, always uh, to the football side of it, uh, and and uh, so naturally, uh, uh, you know, the big Super Bowl when uh, the 49ers were playing San Diego, and uh, he laid the infamous two point uh, whatever two point four million to win three hundred thousand on the uh, on the 49ers to, on the money line against the Chargers then. This is the funny thing about it. Now, Carl Icahn is obviously a genius in his own world. Like when he stepped over to the sports world, he was clueless. <laughs> all he had was a lot of money. Yeah. But, you know, and this, why, why would I say that? Because I, I got to know him a little bit. And uh, now, if he'd call him up now, he'd say, I don't remember that kid. What do I know about him? But, you know, he, he was different. So when he, bet the, when he bet the Super Bowl, when he bet that money line, now, he, before he come over to me, where's Jimmy? I want to talk to him. Okay. And he has like one of those like you know like talking down to you because he was a billionaire and I was just running a sports book. And he said, "Jimmy, I don't want anybody to know that I made this bet." I said, "Carl, don't nobody will know." I said, "Tell the kids, you know, they don't know nothing. They're, 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 they'll keep their mouth shut." Now, are you ready for this? Now, next morning we had two papers at the time uh, in Las Vegas. We had the Review Journal. We had a thing called I don't know if the Las Vegas Sun still here or not. Anyway, there was a big headline. Carl Icahn bets $2.4 million on the money line with the 49 How did it happen? I'll tell you how it happened. Because he couldn't keep his trap shut either. He was there 
And like every everybody else in that type, they they he wanted to play cards with Chip and Doyle and you know that crew and Stewie. Good luck, you know whatever. But when he was back there playing, from what I had heard, the only way it could have happened was like he was telling them of the bet that he made in his sports book. Well, naturally, then I got to Stephen Nover, I think, uh, uh, was there, and Stephen uh, was a writer for the Review Journal of the Sun at the time. So that's where he got the story in the program. He couldn't. He couldn't stand it. He wanted everybody in the world to know that he made this bet. Uh, so you know, he did. He probably made ten or twelve bets with me in about a five-year period. Nothing less than five hundred thousand. <clears throat> excuse me, on anything like that. And so, but he was different. Then he wanted. To, then he wanted to open up a sports book in in Las Vegas. Here's how he wanted to run the sports book. He wanted to have one event a month, or if he liked the, like a big tennis match, you could put it up there. Booking nothing else but just the things he wanted to bet on. In other words, he wanted to shade the number so people would bet against who, who he liked uh, and whatever. But uh, we told him, you know, you, I didn't want to get into it. He was completely <laughs> clueless, and obviously it never, ever happened. But that was his thing. I'm going to open up a sports book. I'm doing it my way. Okay, do it your way. Goodbye. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> that's funny. So, yeah, that, that's that's great. Um, so, Jimmy, uh, you know, the, the the podcast that I'm doing is just called Be Better Betters. It's a lot of it's geared towards uh, beginning betters, guys that are coming up in the business. You know, guys that want to try to learn how to bet. You know, either profitably or maybe lose less money. What advice would you be able to give somebody that's just starting off betting, or that's you know that wants to be able to bet um, with a sound head, and that wants to be able to you know either make a profit or maybe lose less uh, any advice you could give given your, your vast experience no you're on your own with that stuff kids and it's a tough racket it looks very romantic it looks very cool it looks at all the things you know and you hear about the stories where the, you know the guys win all this money and they bet all this money uh it, it's so rare uh I, my my guess is simply that maybe one percent of people actually make more money during the course of the year betting, and that number is shrinking also because we're getting so many different places to play. Uh, there's different rules. Everything is quite different. Uh, the one thing I do, uh, naturally, my first my first 10 years out here, I would always get a lot of calls from people that I grew up with, and uh, Jimmy, you know, I want to come to Las Vegas. I hear you're running the book and whatever. And at that time, which now we're going back 30 some years, I said, yeah, it's not bad, and it looks like this sports is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, then about 20 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, when I get the call, I tell these people to stay home. It's not what it appears to be. And and if you come, what the biggest mistake that everybody makes, thinking you're automatically going to walk out and you're going to start winning. You could, but you have to have a separate bankroll. I've always told people, you got to have enough money to survive maybe 18 months, not using the money you're betting with, because that goes up and that goes down. And the biggest thing that the bookmakers got going for them is like, it's an People just think it, in the end that like you know they're they're going to win. Well, you know you you blow a game with three seconds to go, and then you just run to the counter bet a four teamer for three hundred, and that's really a twenty to one underdog. Uh, and you figure to lose those bets. You must be able to support yourself and not use that money. It's very 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 hard. So I I would tell people now in today's world uh, there are probably better ways. But the, the the other underlying thing is like I'm not you know I can't tell people what to do. But if you come to town and you got $30,000, whatever, you, know, you should be betting $300 a game, $400 a game, maybe. 
at that time. And then just understand the racket, and then understand that uh, you know you have to take, you have to be on the best. But uh, in other words, if a game closes five and and you took five instead of the six and a half that was up there the day before, well then you know. In the long run, you are going to lose. It doesn't mean you're going to win it either, taking the best number, but you have, have to put yourself in the best spot. It's much, much harder. And another reason it's harder because, you know, go back 35 years. If you started with Harry, uh, up uh, by the Tropicana and went down, then you hit the Harry Gordon's uh, Churchill Downs, then you hit the Dunes, then you hit the uh, MGM, then you hit Caesars, then you hit the Sands, then you hit the Flamingo, well, they might have five or six different numbers. With now these, the way everything's consolidated, like the MGM, it's the same number in nine properties. So you can't get the best of it on every game because you, you know, now with the phone accounts and everything else, but the, uh, I would just tell people it's not what it appears to be. I'm not telling you not to try it, but like uh, at least you've got to be able to support yourself and you have to, you must have separate bankrolls or you got zero chance. Jimmy, that, the best advice I, I've heard is it's unbelievable, perfect. You just say, when I first asked you, you said you're on your own, but then you wind up dropping some great wisdom. So that's so great, Try Jimmy. To, yeah. Nada, Try great, to. great advice, great right. advice. Jimmy, thank you so much for coming for you're doing welcome. this. I really appreciate it, um, and um, I, I wish you the best of luck um, at, at the <laughs> South Point and 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 you're continue you're you're entering what your fifth decade now. Uh, you said 47 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I, I'm slowing down pretty good, kid. Believe me, I'm gonna go. I take the summers off now. I go back uh, with my relatives and my kids I grew up with. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Great we'll stuff. We'll go day to day now. Beautiful, All Jimmy. Right, buddy. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Talk soon. Man, that was so much fun legendary career from such a great guy and that last bit of wisdom talking about how you got to get the best number got to have bankroll money management he just pretty much broke down the pillars of being successful in his business Jimmy Vaccaro a legend among legends and such a pleasure to have him on a podcast thanks everyone for the time until next time